Well, if you would turn uh, to Galatians uh, chapter 2, it's page 1168 in your church Bibles, but also uh, turn as well, keep a finger in Acts chapter 11, uh, because in a little bit I'm going to read verses 25 to 30 of of Acts uh, chapter 11, of which I haven't written the page number down. Uh, But I'm going to read now uh, Galatians chapter 2 and verses 1 to 10. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me, God does not show favoritism, they added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. This is God's word. And I've called this message the apostolic gospel. The apostolic gospel. Uh, All of us are familiar with um, standardized measurements. We rely on them for uh, all aspects of our life, don't we? So we know a mile is the same for everybody. Uh, Whether that be uh, however many miles there is, the one mile is is a standardized distance. The same is true of things like time. Uh, The same is true of weight. Although some of us, when we get on our bathroom scales, may think that they're lying to us, the measurement of weight is standardized, isn't it? A kilogram is a kilogram. I've no idea really what a pound or an ounce is, but some of you probably know what that means. Uh, But there is a standardized measurement for all sorts of things. And people might say things like, there is no absolute truth until they want a door hung in their house or they want to be paid a certain amount of money and then all of a sudden there is absolute truth, isn't there? Well, tonight we're going to consider how can we measure gospel truth? How do we know that when someone claims something to be the gospel or claims something about God 
or about what Christ has achieved or about how we get to heaven and so on, how do we know that it is true? What is the standardized measurement that we use to see truth? And we are in this section of Galatians because Paul is explaining what the true gospel is. Paul's authenticity as an apostle is under attack from false teachers. And if we can't trust Paul as an apostle, then we can't trust the gospel that Paul is proclaiming. How do we know that Paul and his gospel are true? How can we measure this? Paul is uh, accused of of peddling a, a gospel that's too easy Uh, The false teachers were saying you had to be circumcised and you had to follow uh, other aspects of the Old Testament law. And Paul is only saying this to make it sound easy. The false teachers said to be a real Christian, you had to, to follow these Old Testament laws. And they accused Paul of being a false apostle who either made his gospel up or received it from somebody else. And Paul is answering this attack. He's answering the attack on his character because the attack on his character is an attack on his message. And he begins with uh, his his proposition that the gospel is not of human origin, but by revelation from Jesus Christ. That's his his statement in chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. And in the, the verses following that, he's giving proofs that he is a genuine apostle who we can trust Last uh, time we saw the first proof was the experience of, of Paul's conversion. Paul's conversion was such that only God could have saved him. Jesus appears to Paul on the road to Damascus where he was on his way to murder Christians and, and Paul was saying, look, only God could have saved me. Only God could have intervened in my life. Nobody else could have, could have turned me around. The experience of Paul's conversion was a proof that his gospel was not just from human origin, but it was from divine revelation. And the second proof that we saw in verses 18 to 24 of chapter 1 was the absence of the apostles. Paul could have received the gospel from other apostles, but he didn't. He couldn't have received it from them because apart from a a two-week stay with Peter, Paul didn't see an apostle until we see tonight, 14 years later. So the gospel did not come to Paul from anyone else. It came to Paul by revelation from Jesus Christ. And as we begin chapter 2, we come to a time when Paul did meet the apostles. He doesn't meet them as his masters who give him the gospel Uh, for the first time, he meets them as his co-defendants and co-workers for the gospel. Paul begins in verse 1, notice, by pointing out this was after 14 years. There's some debate whether it's 14 years after that visit to Jerusalem in chapter 1 or 14 years after his conversion. It's probably after his conversion, but it doesn't matter too much. But in verse 1 of chapter 2, all those years later, he goes up to Jerusalem with Barnabas. And if we want to put this into context, 
It's probably the events of Acts chapter 11, when Paul and Barnabas go to Jerusalem for a famine visit. So turn to Acts 11. I'm going to read you verses 25 to 30 of Acts chapter 11. Uh, Some commentators disagree on when exactly these events in Galatians took place. But from what I've read, I would say this is where we're at. Acts chapter 11 and verse 25 to 30. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year... Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. I would say that these events in Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, are Barnabas and Saul bringing their gift to the churches during this famine. In Galatians, Paul says he also took Titus as well. Uh, The fact that Luke misses that out in Acts doesn't mean that Titus didn't go and that there's a contradiction. None of the the writers of the Gospels, and including Acts, includes every detail of everything. But in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 1, Paul says he took Titus along too. Now this is important because Barnabas was a Jew and Titus was a Gentile, a Greek. And the picture of these two men coming with Paul pictures the kind of churches that Paul was planting, like the ones in Galatia, a mixture of Jewish people and Gentile people. And there is the picture there of one church, Jew and Gentile, worshipping together. But when Titus was with Paul, the following question is going to be asked and needs to be answered. Will Titus have to be circumcised in order to be accepted as a Christian. That was a big issue in the church at the time. The false teachers in Galatia would say, yes, if Titus is going to be a true believer, he has to be circumcised. Paul, on the other hand, would say, no, he doesn't need to be circumcised. What is going to happen? How do we know that what Paul teaches is right and what the false teachers are teaching is false. Well, what we see, first of all, is that when Paul meets the other apostles, we see this. The adversaries of Paul are undermined. The false teachers that are teaching that Titus must be circumcised, we find, are undermined by what goes on here. Notice in verse 2 how Paul went up to Jerusalem in response to a revelation. Now, this may have been a revelation that Paul himself received from God. Uh, If you read the book of Acts, uh, Paul does receive revelations directly from God at different times. 
But it also could be the revelation given to Agabus that we read of in Acts chapter 11. We don't know. But the main point Paul is making here is that the apostles did not summon him to Jerusalem. Rather, they, he came by revelation from God. He isn't coming to the apostles as a subordinate, but rather he's going to them because God has told him to go. And this undermines the adversaries of Paul because they thought that he was a subordinate of the Jerusalem apostles. And Paul meets privately, he says in verse 2, with, notice, those esteemed as leaders. That phrase in verse 2, esteemed as leaders, is interesting because throughout these 10 verses, Paul refers to the leaders in the church in these increasingly elevated ways. So in verse 2, read, those esteemed as leaders. Look at verse 6, those who were held in high esteem. And then in verse 9, those esteemed as pillars. So notice how each time the expression is, is fuller and stronger, and it's almost as if Paul's indignation is rising. What it appears Paul is doing is referring to the Jerusalem apostles in the same way that the false teachers do. The false teachers are saying, the Jerusalem apostles are the esteemed ones, Paul. You're just a subordinate of them. Now, Paul isn't denying that the apostles, uh, particularly Peter and John, are recognized as leaders in the Judean churches, but they are not above him. They are not more of an apostle than he is. But Paul is at pains to point out that the ones the false teachers esteem as leaders, the ones the false teachers think are the super apostles, are undermining their theology and agree with Paul's. Because in this private meeting, Paul presents the gospel to them. Notice that in verse 2. I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. What is the gospel that Paul presents to them? It is the gospel that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. It's the gospel that says our works, circumcision or otherwise, do not save us. It's the gospel that Paul proclaims in the first part of Galatians chapter 1 in verses 3 to 5. It's the gospel that he fleshes out more as his letter to the Galatians go on. He proclaims this gospel to the Jerusalem apostles. And he does so, he says in verse 2, because, look at what it says, I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Now what does Paul mean by that, running my race in vain? Does he mean well, if the Jerusalem apostles are preaching a different gospel, mine isn't true. Well, no, I don't think he means that at all. He's certain of his gospel. He's willing to, we'll see next time, dispute with Peter about the gospel. What he means by running in vain is this. Paul is in the work of, of planting gospel churches all over the world. Imagine what it would be like if Paul's planting a church here, and the other apostles are planting a church somewhere else, and there's not a unity between those churches around the gospel. The fledgling church of Jesus Christ would be divided between two rival factions of Christianity. The testimony would be terrible. He has seen the damage done by a false gospel. 
If the apostles agreed with the false teachers, this damage would continue and be endorsed by people held in high esteem. It would be awful, wouldn't it? Disunity is an awful thing. But Paul needn't have worried because at this meeting in verse 3, notice that Titus, who was with me, was not compelled to be circumcised. The adversaries of Paul would believe that Titus should be, but they're undermined by the fact that the apostles did not compel Titus to be circumcised. So circumcision then, according to the apostles, is not part of the gospel, you see? But the bigger problem here, though, was that the false teachers were claiming that, that circumcision was necessary for salvation. And they were so keen that in verse 4, they had infiltrated the church to try and persuade people that they should be circumcised. There's a kind of espionage going on in verse 4. There was this private meeting going on between Paul and the apostles, and it seems that this, this, this meeting was infiltrated by spies who looked at what was going on, looked at the that what they believed about what the apostles believed about the freedom we have in Christ, and they were trying in this meeting to, to make people turn back. And Paul says at the end of verse 4, make us slaves. The Galatians had, were a mixed church of Jews and Gentiles. Some had been slaves to the, the Old Testament law, some had been slaves to pagan gods, and these false teachers were trying to get people to go back to slavery. They were, trying, they were infiltrating and spying and, 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 and whispering in people's ears and all those kinds of things. But thankfully, in verse 5, Paul says, we did not give in to them for a moment. These false teachers were trying to persuade people to go back to Judaism. But Paul says, not for a moment did any of us apostles give in to them for a moment. And he says, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And when he says for you, he's speaking of the churches in Galatia, but he, they preserved it for us today as well. This gospel has been preserved. At this event, this is our history as a church, isn't it? At this event, the gospel is preserved for us so that we would know you don't need to do any works to save you from your sins. There is freedom in Christ and what he has done for us on the cross. That phrase there in verse 5, the, the truth of the gospel is important because the truth of the gospel is the measure by which we know what is true. And we know from the scriptures that the truth of the gospel is the apostolic gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And by the very fact of not circumcising Titus, the adversaries of Paul were undermined by all of the apostles and by the true gospel which those apostles proclaimed. Now, how does this, apart from thanking God that this meeting went as well as it did, impact us today? Well, it impacts us today because, sadly, these kind of spies infiltrate churches today and try to subvert the gospel with a false gospel that's no gospel at all. We need to be testing what we hear against the measure of the scriptures that we have, that the apostles have laid down for us. 
Now, it may be that we have people infiltrate our church and sit in our seats with the purpose of subverting the message of the gospel. That, that can happen. That does happen. We need to be wary of it, although we do need to be welcoming and not just automatically suspect anyone's a spy. But more so today, I would say that that infiltration comes more through our media, doesn't it? We need to carefully weigh what we are hearing and what we are watching against the teaching of the Scripture. So what the, the world is saying in regards to what a woman is, environmentalism, critical race theory, sexuality, and so on, may sound compassionate and even sound Christian, but we need to be looking at what God says about these issues and what the scriptures say in comparison to what they are saying through our media. We need to be going back always to the apostolic gospel. It's the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, which we use to fight back and to undermine the adversaries of the gospel. And when I say media, I'm not just talking about the news media. I'm talking about social media. I'm talking about what we're watching, uh, all sorts of uh, things like that. We need to be especially careful, I would say, when we hear people claiming to be Christians, speaking what sounds Christian, but are actually preaching another gospel. So just a couple of examples of this. Beware of prosperity gospel preaching that has no theology of suffering. Now you hear this kind of stuff when you listen to organizations like Hillsongs or Bethel Music. I'm not saying we shouldn't ever listen to their music. What I am saying is listen carefully to their theology and their prosperity gospel preaching where there is no theology of suffering because they think, well, if you're suffering, either you're not praying hard enough, you're not getting the victory, you shouldn't be suffering if you're a Christian. That's a false gospel, a false gospel. Listen carefully, compare it to what Paul and the other apostles are saying. Another example is beware of Christian ministers who at the moment... I would say, like Steve Chalk and Jane Ozan and others, that promote a homosexual lifestyle as God-pleasing and now want to ban praying for Christians who are struggling with same-sex attraction. They want to ban us praying for one another in that way, that God would help us to live biblically in that area. And they present themselves as compassionate and loving, Bible-believing Christians when they are preaching a false gospel. Beware of what these people are saying. This week, the Bishop of Oxford, Dr. Stephen Croft, has been on the news saying that churches should have same-sex weddings conducted in them. He presents himself as preaching the gospel. It's a false gospel. Beware. There are so-called Christians, sounding Christian, preaching a false gospel. They are spies infiltrating our churches through our smartphones, preaching a false gospel 
that is a return to slavery. Beware. This kind of thing that goes on in, it's going on in Galatians 2 goes on today, all the time. We must beware. And the gospel that Paul preaches undermines those false gospels. So, Paul's proposition, the gospel is not of human origin, but divine revelation from Jesus Christ. He's given three proofs, but now we come to a fourth, which is kind of the flip side of the same coin of proof three. Proof four is that the apostles and Paul are actually united. This unity is expressed in in two ways. First of all, the unity is recognized, and then the unity is expressed. So first of all, in verse 6 to 8, the unity is recognized. First of all, they are united in their message. Paul points out that the leaders of high esteem in Jerusalem did not add anything to the gospel that he preached. So when Paul uh, goes to this meeting, and in uh, verse, uh, whatever it was, verse 2, preaches the gospel to them, they didn't say, well, okay, Paul, that's great, but you're missing these points. They didn't add anything. They were united in their message. It was the same gospel. In other words, the message is the same. Interestingly, whilst being united around the message, they were not divided around their position in the church. Notice that in verse 6. Paul says, uh, they were held in high esteem, but whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. So God, God didn't favor one of these apostles over the other. They were all apostles. They were all preachers of the gospel. And by the way, that means you, you know, don't, don't just come to church when your favorite preacher is preaching. Come to church when the gospel is being preached, okay? But they were not divided over position, but they were united around their message. So first of all, united in their message. Secondly, in verse 7, they were united in their mission. United in their mission. Rather than adding to Paul's message... They took the same message to the spheres where God had called them. Both of them had been entrusted with the message. And their mission was to pass on the message entrusted to different people. That word, by the way, entrusted, is important. It shows us that the message of the gospel is God's message that he entrusts to his people. It's a bit like uh, if, you're get, if you order something on Amazon, uh, you see loads of stories on the news, don't you, where delivery drivers have tampered with the package and then it arrives and it's broken or it's been you know, taken sometimes or whatever. And you, you're mad about that because what you've ordered is what you expect to receive in the package. And that's a bit like with what this word entrusted means. Were the delivery drivers, if you like, of the gospel entrusted by God with this message that we're to pass on? We're not supposed to to tamper with it or steal it or change it or mess with it. We pass on the message God has entrusted to us and we deliver it safely and in, in one piece. And that's important, by the way, if you're preaching or teaching in any way in our church, what you preach and teach 
is what you, you are entrusted with God's message to pass it on. So be careful with that, that gospel message. Don't mess about with it. Carefully pass on what God has entrusted you with. So it was the same message, it was the same mission, but there was different audiences. Notice in verse 7, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised or to non-Jewish people, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. So the message was the same. It didn't matter whether you were a, a Gentile or a Jew, the message was the same and the mission was the same. And that's important. It doesn't, it doesn't matter who you're speaking to. It might be a different context. You might need to explain things in a slightly different way, but the message is fundamentally the same. It's the gospel. So united in their message, united in their mission, and thirdly, in verse 8, they're united in their master. United in their master. Look at verse 8. For God, that's the master, God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. Both Peter and Paul had the same master working in and through them, helping them to proclaim the same message in their different places. The work of God was recognized in them both. So this is how unity there is recognized. They have the same message, the same mission with the same master. And so when this unity was recognized, their message, mission, and master, then in verses 9 to 10, unity is expressed. In verse 9, uh, the esteemed ones are identified as James, Cephas, another name for Peter, and James, who is the brother of Jesus. Not an apostle, by the way, but Jesus' brother. And they're described as pillars. Uh, that refers to them being foundational in the establishment of the church. Paul does not dispute their importance in the church, but I think there is a slight undertone of mockery that they are uh, you know, great as they are, they are not as great as the false teachers are making out. These men, so highly esteemed by the false teachers, offer Paul the right hand of fellowship. Notice that in verse 9. They gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. Uh, the right hand of fellowship was a, a gesture that was a formal and public endorsement of all that Paul and Barnabas had been doing among the Gentiles. So it showed everybody that the other apostles agreed with Paul and Barnabas. We agree, we're united with this pair. Where, where, where they go, they go with our full backing. That's what it means. And this would have encouraged Paul and Barnabas in their work. And they offered this endorsement, it says, because they recognized the grace given to me. Grace here refers to a gift, specifically in Paul, the gift of apostleship. It was a gift of grace given to Paul. Grace is a gift given to someone to use in the church. It's used elsewhere in the New Testament. So Romans 12, 6 is an example where Paul says, we have different gifts 
according to the grace given to each of us. So basically what happens is the apostles recognized God's given you a gift, Paul and Barnabas. We support you, we endorse you, we send you, and we're happy to do so. It's an expression of unity. So unity is expressed in verse 9 with the public endorsement of the right hand of fellowship, but it's expressed in verse 10 more practically. They literally put their money where their right hand is, is how you would describe it. At the end of verse 9, there's an agreement that Paul, Barnabas, and Titus should go to the Gentiles, and John, Cephas, and James should go to the Jews. But their unity was to be expressed in Paul's team being asked to continue to remember the poor. Now, why would Paul have to be told this? I mean, at the end of verse 10, he says he was planning on doing that anyway. Well, if this trip in Galatians chapter 2 was indeed the famine relief trip of Acts chapter 11, the poor here refer to those in Judea and the area where Jerusalem is. At this time, the Gentile churches were comparatively more wealthy than the Jewish ones. Uh, Palestine, where Jerusalem was, was an overtilled, overpopulated land that was constantly having pilgrims coming and going. It was, uh, as one commentator described, a bloated religious capital crammed with hungry, unproductive mouths which seemed to have little true economic basis for its existence. It was a poor place. And so Paul was being asked, please go to the Gentiles, but, but remember the poor in this area where God's people are. While you're gone, Paul, don't forget us. And Paul writes here in Galatians that he had been eager to do this all along. And he later shows this commitment by taking up collections and distributing them. So Romans chapter 15, he says, Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Achaia, which were Gentile churches, were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. Romans was written after Galatians, and this was an example of Paul fulfilling what he says in Galatians 2. Then in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Now about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of the week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collection will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. Notice, he told the Galatian churches to do this. He's telling the Corinthians to do this. He told the Romans to do this. Paul fulfilled his commitment to look after the poor of Jerusalem. And he did it all over the place. Romans, Galatians, Corinthians. Paul was as good as his word, in other words. And the sharing of resources is a mighty sign of unity. And it would also, in this context, break down the walls of prejudice that did exist between Jew and Gentile in the churches. 
Now for us today, verses 6 to 10 are an example of how we show our unity in the gospel with others who take the gospel to different places. So when we, when we as a church look to support missions, we unite with those whose missions proclaim the apostolic gospel. We recognize unity. So we support missions that have the same message that we have, with the same ultimate mission of reaching the lost, and we recognize too evidence where God, our master, is at work in that mission. And when this unity is recognized, then we express that in standing with them in a public endorsement, and we give them financial support to help them in their work. You see, we do the same thing um, in our church today. An example recently of this was that there were Christians in Ukraine uh, suffering. Uh, They are poor. And so what did we do as a church? We had a gift day where we gave a gift of money to the believers in the Ukraine through the Slavic Gospel Association, a mission who we support that have the same message, the same mission with the same master, who were able to help the poor in Ukraine at this time. And those are things that we should always be doing as a church. We should be a generous church in supporting mission of God's kingdom. But also as individuals, let me encourage you in two ways to express your unity. First of all, pray for the missions that we support as a church. If you haven't done so, sign up to all of their newsletters. Uh, They're really encouraging to read, to see what God is doing in these missions that we support. And then pray for them. Pray for the, the, the prayer points that the missions and missionaries give us That is a way of of showing your unity with those brothers and sisters proclaiming the gospel all over the world. If you want to know what missions we support, you can have a look at the board at the back before the exit, or just come and ask one of the elders or deacons. We'd love to share more with you about what missions we support, so just ask and we can tell you more. So pray for missions. But secondly, as far as you're able, give to missions. I know we give as a, as a church body, but if you're able, give to missions as individuals as well. In fact, if I may be so bold, consider even providing for missions in your will or something like that. We want as God's people to support those who are sharing the gospel across the world, don't we? It's a sign of our unity that is expressed in a very tangible way. So the gospel Paul preached is the only way to eternal life. It's the the real gospel, the apostolic gospel. It's not of human origin. It's of divine revelation. We can trust that his gospel is true. He's shown us from the experience of his conversion, from the absence of any human being, apostle or otherwise, giving it to him. He's shown it in his adversaries being undermined by his gospel and by the apostles. And it's been shown in the way that he's united with the apostles in the apostolic gospel. And so brothers and sisters, one of the main points of this whole section is that we are reminded this gospel is true. It's true. It's the measure by which all truth claims about God and the life to come are put up against. 
this gospel is the true gospel. And this gospel needs to be shared. So let us be those who share it and support others who do so. Now, what we're going to do to close, I think it'd be a really good thing uh, to express our unity together by standing and saying together the Apostles' Creed. Uh, This creed wasn't written by the Apostles as such, uh, but it is a creed that sums up what the Apostles in the Scriptures have taught. It's an an ancient creed of um, our faith and one that we uh, believe as God's people together. So let's stand uh, and we'll say these words together. Uh, And then after we've said these words, we'll sing uh, the church's one foundation. So let's stand to say the Apostles' Creed and then we'll remain standing uh, to sing. We believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from where he shall come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy worldwide church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.